Hey, Will. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Can't complain. And how are you? Um, I've been worse, as we say here in the Midwest. Yep, you're in Iowa. Mm -hmm. You're in flyover yeah. country. Yeah, no, I'm not asking if it's heaven right now. It's like been like the high is like minus two. Yeah, it's, it's getting awful. a little little depressing here. We've had a lot of snow on the ground for a long time, but that's about to change, we're told. Are you in Princeton? I am. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, it's just been a while since we've had a real winter. And this last last couple of weeks has seemed like a real winter. So it's taking some a little reorienting. Um, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Will Wilkinson. The it's true. The proprietor of the Model Citizen newsletter on Substack, which we'd like to talk about before this is all over. Um, but uh, first, we want to talk about uh, some other stuff that 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 winds up involving a bunch of other Substack newsletters. I have one of those too, by the way. Uh, but I digress. You do? Um, I do. It's it's called the Non-Zero Newsletter. I, I am I inferring correctly that you're not a subscriber, Will? You are inferring correctly, but I consider that an egregious oversight that I will hasten to correct immediately. Uh, could you do that? Maybe we could. Could we pause the recording now while you do that? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave a note to myself. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about a community called the Rationalists, which I was really not even dimly aware of until a controversy broke out over a New York Times article about the former blog Slate Star Codex, which now has uh, morphed into a newsletter on Substack, which is called Astral Codex 10. And uh, you got kind of tangentially involved in, there was a lot of blowback over this piece. Um, and, but, you know, from supporters of, of the blog and the newsletter, uh, the newsletter we now know is is uh, put out by somebody named Scott Alexander Siskind. The it's it's pre it, it's its predecessor, the blog Slate Star Codex, uh, had been put out by someone who was called as a pseudonym Scott Alexander. I hope this is complicated enough so far. Um, I'm following. Okay, but you already knew about it. Okay, but so, I've been I've been there from the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So you, so, so anyway, supporters of, of Scott and his blog and newsletter were disdainful of the New York Times piece, which they felt was unfair. He felt it was unfair. Then I noticed on Twitter, you being a little disdainful of the people who were disdainful in a certain sense, in a certain sense, you will agree. Yeah, I was kind of trolling them. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, it, it's it's, it's kind of, I consider them cousins. And it's, it's it's a little like giving a noogie to your uh, to your cousin that you love, but you consider slightly annoying. Well, this is one thing that interested me about you seeming to give them a little blowback, because I do think of you as kind of a rationalist type. Again, I want to talk about this whole subculture that I wasn't very aware of before I read this, which apparently has the official name, the rationalist. But I had always thought of you as you know, rationalist just in the in the more generic sense. I mean, you started out as a libertarian when I first knew you. Libertarians have that air that, hey, you know, we can we can figure everything out. 
Um, and also not, perhaps not unrelatedly, I don't know if you feel like talking about this, but there was a cancel culture subtext to this New York Times piece in a certain sense. And the allies of Scott Alexander Siskin's blog and newsletter are anti-cancel culture, it is fair to say. And you, in a certain sense, uh, ran afoul of some cancel culture. You, 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 you did a tweet that was apparently not everyone understood was a joke. Uh, your your employer was not enthusiastic. I don't know if you feel like I think getting... everybody did understand that it was a joke. Even there was, the, there was the... a lot of opportunistic bad faith mm. uh, around it. Um, it was a good tweet. Uh, can I, it was can... a funny joke. I think that was actually part of the problem was that the joke was really good. It was, I, I've seen people punished for worse, I'll tell you. It was that you were making fun of the general like meme that look, if Biden really wants to unify the country, he has to follow these various policies that Trump supporters want, like he has to cave. And you tweeted by way of caricaturing this idea, I think it's fair to say, that if Biden really wants to unify the country, was what was it? He should hang Mike Pence. Was that? I, it? I, I unfortunately said lynch Mike Pence, lynch which Mike was Pence. also uh, you know like not the oh that has a whole second language yeah. to use. But that you know that 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 wasn't really the problem. I ran afoul of people on the right, not people on the so left. So you were advocating right. violence. Is that fair to say? Um, I was not advocating violence. I was um, scornfully mocking uh, people who seemed to be indifferent to the fact mm -hmm. that um, Donald Trump supporters literally were uh, marauding through the Capitol as Congress was trying to certify the results of the election. And they were yelling, hang Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. Right. And I find it pretty astonishing that a Republican mob yelling, hang Mike Pence, seemed not to be that worrying to the Republican Party, okay. <laughs> like I, I what 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 must ha Mike Pence feel, right? Like so. Anyway, like the idea of the idea, mm -hmm. like I I wrote a I wrote a thing on this uh, on my on my Substack, uh, you know, modelcitizen.substack.com, uh, and uh, about the I just called it the unity grift. You know, like Biden had some lovely words about the importance of unity in his inaugural address. Um, and then immediately Republicans started like, well, if he really cared about unity, he'd, you know, whatever it is that mm -hmm. Republicans wanted in the first place. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it, it was so obviously insincere, uh, you know, like, and he wasn't, he didn't say, you know, we need to do everything on a bipartisan basis. He was saying we need to not be the kind of country where partisans you know, stage an insurrection and try to overturn a legitimate election, mm -hmm. right? Like that's a pretty dangerous form of divisiveness. Um, maybe we should get beyond that, right? Like, and I, I think anybody who's not um, a moral idiot um, can agree with that. But the Republican Party seems to have a, a difficult time acknowledging that it's a problem. And and so you had all of these Republican elected officials who still wouldn't admit 
you know, like if you asked them, did Donald Trump lose the election? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't say, right? Like they would, uh, like a bunch of, you know, House members and senators after they were routed from the chambers of Congress during a joint session to certify the election, a bunch of them still voted to not certify the electoral votes from, you know, Pennsylvania and a couple other states, right? Um, so, I mean, like, what could be more divisive than literally trying to overturn completely legitimate election results where there's no evidence whatsoever that there's any issue? Um, it's just this giant lie. This is incredibly divisive. But so Republicans won't acknowledge, a lot of them won't even acknowledge the role that they're playing in inciting this insurrection, um, in dividing America, like by, by maintaining the big lie mm -hmm. that Biden is an imposter or a pretender and that his authority is illegitimate, right? They won't do any of that, but they'll criticize him for an executive order reversing some things that, you know, Donald Trump did about immigration and the environment. Like, ah, oh, so much for unity, right? And so I was calling out that just completely egregious hypocrisy uh, by like, you know, if they, you know, everybody can agree on hanging Mike Pence, I guess, you know. Apparently not. Uh, and not everyone can agree that your tweet was... Was uh was was uh, a good idea, I guess. So do, do so. I mean, I think. Do you want to talk about the consequences you suffered for this tweet? Because you know what, it might. Well, it before might... I wrote the tweet, yeah, I had a job <laughs> at, as the vice president for research at the Discana Center. Um, shortly thereafter. I was no longer employed by the Discana Center. Well, that's a, a good. Uh, a and that's about all I can say about that. Oh, good. Uh, so it sounds like you at least, uh, signed some papers. That's good. Papers are good. The, the, um, uh, Who knows? but I do think it, it drives home the point that everyone should subscribe to your newsletter now that you're unemployed. Don't you think model citizen? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, ab absolutely. I would highly encourage everyone to there subscribe is a, to my newsletter. There is a, it's a paid, there's a, like a paid version and some of them are, are free, but it's right now it's, paid. It's, it's all free. I'm trying oh, to maximize. Will, yeah, come right, on, right. man. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. No, I, I talked to the people at Substack. Yeah. They say the way the way to do it is to maximize your total list. Yeah. And then try to convert um, a percentage of your unpaid list to paid after you've gone for a little ways. I need um, to talk to them. I just did that. I just did that. I just went paid. Yeah. And I would like to see a higher percentage of my unpaid become paid than has happened so far. It's not nothing. I'm doing, you know, not bad, but I, I would, you know. Yeah, I'm doing pretty, I'd like it. Like I was really touched by, there was a huge outpouring of support for mm -hmm. me uh, on Twitter and other social media uh, after this happened. And, and that did convert into um, many hundreds of people subscribing to my Substack, stack. Uh, and so it provides a, a small, Yet inadequate income. Mm -hmm. So wait, you mean you are paid now? You, you... I people people are paying for subscriptions. Okay, right. Well, like see, so like my my, oh. my instinct at first, oh, I see. was 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 like oh you know like people will feel cheated if uh, you know like if I'm just giving it away. 
Yeah. But the Substack people told me, no, people pay for it because they want to support you. Um, and, and, uh, and so just like leave it open for the most part, um, so that you're bringing people into it, mm-hmm. getting people to sign up. And then over time you, you know, you convert, you, you close, you, cl- you always be closing. Slowly. It's like the frog in the boiling water. They didn't realize what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then they're, they're just so addicted to mm-hmm. your scintillating writing mm-hmm. that once it goes behind the paywall, mm-hmm. it's almost like they have no choice. Yeah. That's what happened with me. Um, mine Hold is called the non-zero newsletter. Hi. By the way, you didn't ask. Hi. No, I don't need anything here. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I was in the middle of plugging my newsletter and you struck up a conversation with someone vacuuming. It's true. Uh, so um i'm hoping they stop very soon (laughs) it's not that bad but i'll tell you the beauty of uh of us recording separate uh soundtracks is that it'll only be audible while you're talking we can arrange for that to be the case um so look let's talk about this whole rationalist thing so anyway there's two senses in which i might have expected you to line up with a rationalist a you're the rationalist type even though you have drifted somewhat leftward uh, of your original libertarianism. And also you sometimes show signs of wokeness, which I have always taken to be a product of your having been taken captive by people at the University of Iowa there. Did that happen? Did young people take you captive? Yeah, uh, a, a kind of sort of like a, a SWAT team mm-hmm. of liberal arts undergraduates Diver- broke down diverse? the doors a di- to a my diverse, house. A diverse SWAT oh, it was a very diverse group uh-huh. uh, of, of people dressed in tactical clothing. I was kidnapped, taken to the basement of the, uh, you know, the literature department and uh, forced to read Derrida until, <laughs> well, that's I, how it until I cracked. Uh, and, and so now I've been brainwashed. Um, that's how so, it starts. Um, So anyway, uh, with that as an asterisk, you sometimes show signs of wokeness. I still, given the fact that you have, in a certain sense, been a victim of a kind of a weird kind of cancel culture, A, and B, are rationalists. I might have thought you wouldn't be trolling the rationalists in response to this, amid this controversy about the New York Times article. Now, at this point, maybe we should back up and tell the story of the rationalist, the blog, and so on. Now, were you were aware of this this blog, Slate Star Codex, for some time? I assume. Yeah, you know, I could I, I can give you some some background, um, but like, so there, like there's a kind of genealogy of these kind of rationalist blogs. Um, they kind of start with Robin Hansen's overcoming bias. Okay. Which you know, I don't know. I've had him on the show. I don't know, 2007, 2008. I'm not sure w- w- when he started that. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, I worked at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, mm-hmm. uh, it, where I had a lot of interaction with the uh, the libertarian types at the George Mason Economics Department. Which Tyler Cowan, is. Robin Hansen, mm-hmm. um, Brian Kaplan, uh, and a bunch of others. Um, I knew them pretty well. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I know. Tyler pretty well. Um, and, you know, Tyler and I were like debate partners at a, you know, an economist debate where we uh, debated uh, Jeffrey Sachs and uh, Betsy mm. Stevenson uh, and, and won. 
I would, no doubt. You know, we, you know, we were pretty close for um, for a time. Um, I, I knew Robin pretty well. Um, and I, I had organ like when I worked there, I had organized a conference for Robin and Tyler um, around a paper that they had written on on disagreement and self-deception, you know, given Bayesian assumptions. Like, why should we disagree at all? Shouldn't we just kind of converge? Like, I'm talking to you, Bob. You're at least as smart and well-informed as I am. Thank you. Thank you. So if we disagree, shouldn't I just assume that I'm at least half wrong? Arguably. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh. And, uh, and, and, and and likewise, you know. I'm like not... you. you Okay, you, come, you know, and so shouldn't we just like if we were rational, shouldn't we just converge every time? Shouldn't disagreements just end every time you met somebody who you judge to be, you know, know as much and as good at processing information as you are, right? Like, it, and, and it was about how, you know, like why it is that people don't do Anyway, they like there was, a, they had a, we had a big conference with a bunch of famous people. Um, and, you know, I went to some parties at their houses anyway. So I was, I, I, was, I pickled in the ethos of the kind of, George Mason mm-hmm. Libertarian Economics now, Department. Now, let me interject like that, that the, got, that the yeah. New York Times piece by this guy, Cade Metz, kind of depicts this as largely a Silicon Valley phenomenon, the rationalist thing. Yeah. He doesn't, I don't remember if he, yeah, he probably mentions libertarianism, but anyway. Uh, I'm just it, telling you the origin yeah, yeah. story, right? So, so Robin starts this Overcoming Bias blog, which gets a little community around it about like, you know, we have cognitive biases. We want to be rational. We want to mm-hmm. have true beliefs, not false beliefs. How do we, you know, overcome our biases to uh, so that we, you know, aren't wrong? Um, out of that um, kind of community, Eliezer Yudkowsky starts mm-hmm. a thing called Less Wrong. Um, he, he was on Blogging Heads long ago. Yeah, I don't know him. At all. I interesting mean, interesting guy, unusual internet, guy, very interesting guy, um, very smart. Um, you know, had don't know him, had some online interactions. Uh, and uh, and then out of that community, and I think I remember uh, Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex, he was a member of that community. He would comment extensively, he was a popular commenter there. He started his own thing. I think it was at Less Wrong and not all the way back to overcoming bias, but I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Um, so he started his own thing, Slate Star Codex, and a big following, you know, was created around that. Um, he's a psychiatrist and is, you know, really into these general questions about, you know, intellectual biases and, you know, how are you right about, you know, how, how can you try to be right about things more often? Um, but he you know, has really broad interest and it's a fascinating, clearly intellectually brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always enjoyed Flight Star Codex. I, 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 I learned a lot from it. Um, but over the over the years, so I was I was inside that like I was never really part of these communities um, because I wasn't that into what they were doing. Like by the time I like, met, you know, like the fountainheads of these ideas like the the robin hansons and tyler cowens and like like i I was a pretty advanced phd student in philosophy i had my own ideas about epistemology and practical and epistemic rationality and uh and the way economists and computer engineers and uh that type 
um, mathematicians, the way they think about these questions isn't the way I was kind of trained to think about them uh, as a philosophy grad student um, who was in philosophy grad school for way too long. Um, so I was always sort of like interested and tangentially kind of connected, but like never really a very active member of these communities. I would just pop in and out. I would, I basically, I would read posts on these places when Tyler would link to them from Marginal Revolution, which he did all the time. So I read quite a bit of them. Um, and if I ever participated in like the comments, I would, it was just because I wanted to argue with somebody about why they were being wrong about how to be less wrong. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, uh, and I became aware of uh, the blog, I guess, years ago. I haven't read it a whole lot. I actually emailed Scott Alexander about being on my show. He wrote back a very nice email and 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 actually said, I'm, uh, you know, he had read some of my books or something, was very nice, but, but explained to me that he was uh, maintaining a pseudonym, which I hadn't actually realized. Uh, yeah. That's my only interaction with him. There was a famous kind of incident, uh, I guess, a, a couple of years ago or something. I don't know when, but but uh, the New York Times got in touch with him. We're doing a piece on you and house rules say we have to disclose your actual name. And he said, I don't want that to happen. I'm a psychiatrist. I have patients. I don't want them to know about the, the blog side of me and so on. And so I'm taking the blog offline in response to your threat. Uh, and I guess he kind of mobilized some of his supporters to complain to the New York Times that maybe they shouldn't dox him as he saw it. Uh, so that passed. They didn't run the piece. And then when I guess he did disclose his name and uh, start his Substack newsletter, they felt they could go ahead and proceed with the piece. I think that's what happened here, right? I guess so. I don't know what went on in the Times. I mean, so the so the crazy thing about this, so like, so I've been around this community all this time, like I've got a ton of friends who are super into Slate Star Codex, um, and I've always enjoyed it. I think I, I I I like Scott better than a lot of the people who hang out there, um, and uh, but like when this whole thing blew up, I, you know, I I had some friends like text me like like you know the, the Times is going after Scott Alexander, like we have to protect him, and and I was like and I was like went to Slave Star Codex and saw what it, what it was about. And I was like, wait, this is a journalist who's trying to do some journalism, right? Like, it's, like he does not have it out for this guy. Um, and, I, and I think people who've never been a journalist maybe see things a little bit differently than you do if you are a journalist. Um, and, and, and a lot of what's going on here is kind of, pre-existing animus toward um kind of the elite gatekeeping institutions hmm. um like and this is one of the reasons i ended up kind of falling out of this world like i was always a little bemused by their overly abstract and kind of uh you know rationalist well, i mean rationalist in the not good sense uh of of not having a a rich and thick enough empirical view of human nature and the things that drive people like they, they, they tended to be pretty reductive that I always found that kind of like, which is kind of ironic. I mean, you know, Matt Iglesias wrote a thing about this whole controversy. I mean, sorry to interrupt. We'll get back no, to, no. Your, to your thing, but you know, you would think rationalists 
Well, the name of Robin Hanson's thing was overcoming bias. And so you would think that um, rationalists would want to uh, overcome obstacles in human nature to clear thought. And I'm sure they do a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And yet I think of myself as being very much in that game. And when I mm-hmm. listen to these people, I don't think they're in the same game I'm in, if that makes sense to you. Does that, that makes total sense to me? Because that's how I feel. Yeah. Like I, it's it's almost like I guess I would I, like from this Yudkowsky guy again. Interesting guy. He was very young back when he was on Blogging Heads more than ten years ago. He just seemed to me kind of naive about the prospects for rationalism. You know, l- like the prospects of just a bunch of people to get together and figure out this genius solution that would, <laughs> I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words. Uh, I, 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 well, here's what I think. I almost think that he thought that he was not hobbled by the biases that hobble ordinary human beings. And I think that's the biggest mistake of all because we all are. Kind of. Does this make any sense? I shouldn't say this because I really don't remember that clearly what he said. No, yeah, I, yeah. But but like, yeah, I mean, it's just knowing that you don't know is the height of wisdom, right? <laughs> like, uh, and, and and there's a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, more than a little bit of hubris um, in some of the the culture that is that that that, that built that is built up around some of these communities. Um like you, you mentioned Matt's piece. I, I, I thought it was, it was, it was a really nice. I, I liked what On Matt another wrote. Another Substack he, newsletter, slow boring. Go ahead. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think it was a, a like a nice, um, apology. You know, in the sense of defense of, uh, you know, like what goes on at Slate Star Codex, because um, the because the latest controversy, the, the the so Cade Metz actually wrote this piece. The reason, the thing that people are mad about is that. Um, they feel like he misrepresented the nature of the community. Like he focused a lot on uh, how a lot of kind of reactionary types, like Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He used to go by Mencius Moldbug. The, the <laughs> guy called, uh, Curtis who Yarvin. was called a neo-reactionary. Curtis Yarvin. Right? Yeah. Like, so, 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 you know, Metz gets into how... Um, these kinds of thinkers, some of whom are, you know, straight up fascist, <laughs> like uh, uh, are kind of around the edges of this community and how it's, you know, how it can be sort of like, like, you know, and I think Metz intended to point out a kind of Karl Popper paradox of tolerance sort mm-hmm. of issue, right? I don't think he meant to characterize Scott as fascist friendly yeah i mean um, I will because say- he's not um but like uh but that's part of the reason he panicked and nuked his blog because he knew that there were people in his community that were um into some unsavory ideas and he's like r- really worried that they would get attached to him and he has pers- you know personal and professional interests that that would be really deleterious to so he like really wanted to avoid it um, but like when that all that happened and people were like, t- like, we gotta, we gotta save Scott. Um, and, and I, and I just read it. I, I was, my mind was a little bit boggled because I like, I like, um, 
because it was just a, a guy it was just a journalist doing journalism um like he wanted to write a story the the presumption like journalists and this is where i think one of the ironies is here there's a lot of hostility towards the new york times mm-hmm. in that group um there's a lot of hostility towards journalism as an institution generally there's a lot of hostility towards universities as a culture um and i and part of the irony in that is that in my opinion um and you know I'm not just, you know, buttering my own bread because I write for the New York Times on occasion. But the New York Times is one of the world's premier, you know, information and knowledge gathering institutions. Mm -hmm. And its culture is profoundly committed to um, not being biased, to objectivity, to checking the facts to make sure that you get them straight. Right. Like and there's no sense whatsoever in which somebody who likes to talk about epistemology on the Internet is more committed to kind of rooting out the truth than a real reporter who has to go through a thicket of lies and gaslighting and bullshit and propaganda to get at the story because everybody has an interest in you saying what they want you to say about them, right? Like it's, it's journalism's not science because it's got moving targets, right? People who are making news often don't want to be making news. Um, and they're very hostile to people who want to find out the truth about what it is that they've done. And so they'll threaten you. They'll lie to you. They'll get people they know who you might not suspect will lie to you to lie to you, right? Like, so a lot of reporters, you're constantly like the the job is oriented very fundamentally towards facts and truth and you're navigating all of this these crazy obstacles you're going through this maze to try to and and given that fact right like it's it's literally impossible for the the times or the wall street journal news page or whoever to not constantly fuck it up mm -hmm. because the people's interest in lying to you and to spinning their story in a way that's advantageous to them is absolutely overwhelming and the reason is because those institutions are so credible. If you can pull one over on a New York Times reporter and get them to tell your story that is complete bullshit that you made up that just makes you look good through their megaphone, um, people will believe it because people believe the New York Times is credible and a reliable source of accurate information about the world. Mm -hmm. Right. So because they have such a good reputation, they're constantly being fucked with. And that makes being a, a journalist really, really hard. Right. So anyway, I, I, I'm belaboring that because because um, I think there's a kind of blindness in not seeing that what Cade Metz was doing was just part of the job of somebody who's fundamentally committed to communicating actual facts about actual people who are often trying to lie to you to the rest of the world, right? He's gonna write a story about this guy. His real name is a fact. And prima facie, that's relevant to the right. story, right? And like, and that's all that's going on. Like, it's just ridiculous to think that like somebody who works in New York Times has it out for this niche blog, right? Um, but uh, anyway, you would okay. have something to say. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you say, I mean, first I should say like, I have, uh, on the on the uh, kind of journalism and epistemology question, uh, 
I have, I mean, I've been an actual newspaper journalist in the past. And I, I first of all, agree that it gives you a healthy cynicism. It teaches you that you should really be slow to form judgments about what the truth is. Because when you talk to the first person, it's like you've got this picture and then you realize there's this other person to talk to who has a very different view. It's very healthy in that way. I will say I have had my own criticisms of how the New York Times has uh, conducted its business in an age when it has become more and more kind of financially dependent on subscriptions from members of, of the resistance. I'm just noting that I don't, we don't, we don't need yeah, to. Yeah, I, I do too. Like, and the thing is like, I, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a problem when they screw up, like, you know, Judith Miller's stories that helped get us into the That's Iraq another war thing, yeah. were a big problem. But like, the, again, it's a huge problem when the times conveys inaccurate information because people believe it and has yeah. real consequences. Um, and, and I agree with you too. Like, like, um, I'm not saying that there's not bias, like at all. I'm just saying that it's hard and it's totally true. It's like a, you know, a theme on a lot of the work that I've been doing recently that, that you get a lot of self-selection into occupations based on sensibilities and mm -hmm. kind of personality. Um, and I think a lot of professions are becoming more and more homogenous. Um, they, you know, they attract, like when people have a lot of resources and wealth and a lot of freedom and discretion to do what they actually want to do um they're it's they're more likely to do the thing that their personality really like wants them to do and not just like take the first opportunity that like appears and 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 i think over time that makes different professions more uniform in the kind of person who opts into them and then when that same kind of person constitutes that profession, that build, builds a culture of that kind of person. And that makes it even more exclusionary and hostile to people with a different sensibility. And I think there's a kind of spiral that you go down that is not healthy, mm -hmm. uh, like because diversity is a, is a real value intellectually and morally for lots of reasons. But intellectually, it's really important because um, people with different perspectives are less likely to make correlated errors. And that's really important, right? And, and it's hard for institutions like the Times to not fall into over homogeneity because like, there's just not that many people who don't have this a liberal sensibility who really seriously pursue a career in journalism, right? Like, and, and, and some of it's because people with a more conservative sensibility aren't as attracted to it. And some of it's that the culture that's built up around it has become more hostile over time to people with a conservative sensibility. The example that I always give on the other side, it's like, I think police departments have a similar problem where the same kind of selection effect has made them more and more kind of like reactionary in, in, in their composition. And they become a less and less friendly place for somebody who's like a bleeding heart who just wants to help by keeping their community safe. And you right? speak, There's, you speak as the son of a police chief, do you not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I, my observation is that police culture has changed quite a bit since you um, were, since you were, you, since, since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like, I don't think my dad necessarily would have gone into law enforcement. Um, I don't think that's really his sensibility, but he did because he joined the army so that he'd become a U.S. citizen mm -hmm. and the army put him in the military police. So he 
you know, applied for policeman jobs and he was good at it and he got promoted. Um, but I don't really think that was his like native element. Um, and, but, and I think just even just a generation ago, that was much more common, right? Like you yeah. became a bricklayer because like your best friend's dad was a bricklayer and could get you a job. Well, same Not is because- true of the army. I grew up as an army brat and the army is, has, was much more apolitical when my dad was in the, I mean, I mean, my dad didn't even vote because he thought an officer shouldn't vote. And, and, um, now, and it was how my dad was about being police chief. He, he, he he thought he had a, a a position of community responsibility. He wanted everybody to trust that, um, that, that, that he was there for them, no matter what they thought. And he thought it was irresponsible to say anything about politics Mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. Um, so because like, yeah. But that's so, not how it is these days. Uh, no, thing, a lot of things have changed. So on the, I mean, uh, as for, I mean, you're right. I, I think news uh, newspapers have long been populated mainly by liberals. I, I do think there's something that's changed lately about the mode of presenting the news is not healthy, but I don't want to get off into that. The main thing I'd say is one allegation that is made about the Times is that it, it is now suffused in woke sensibility and that's why James Bennett was fired. And that's why Don McNeil was fired. And that's and so on. So there is this whole criticism of it. And I don't doubt that defenders of uh, Scott's blog and newsletter will say that this piece is itself a manis- manifestation of uh, hyper woke uh, sensibility. And, and we should say, by the way, you know, uh, uh, Scott Siskind you know, the proprietor of the blog and then the newsletter, he has his reply to the piece, which he thinks was unfair. I'll give you an example of something he cites that at least superficially sounds like a legitimate gripe. The quote from the Times is, in one post, he, meaning Scott, aligned himself with Charles Murray, who proposed a link between race and IQ in the bell curve. In another, he pointed out that Murray believes Black people are genetically less intelligent than white people. Now, According to to Scott, uh, he 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 aligned himself with Murray uh, on a totally different issue that that's that's unrelated to this. So so the sentence in one post, he aligned himself with Charles Murray, who proposed the link between race and IQ and the bell curve. Is if that's true, assuming he's 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 right about that, that sentence would be misleading. Um, I think it's misleading. I think it's I think it's bad writing. Um, like, uh, like, but the, you know, like there's also a, you know, the, the obvious charitable interpretation of it is that Charles Murray is best known to the readers of the New York times yeah. as the guy who wrote the bell curve, right? Like, and, and so, you know, there, it's like he, you know, he agreed with Charles Murray, you know, the guy who wrote the bell yeah. curve, right? Like, but it's just not really relevant to anything. So I think it, that was kind of shitty. Um, but, but I don't necessarily think it comes out of a place of of malice it i i think the i think the point like like that the article was making and you know i don't think it's a great article i just think it's like a standard piece of journalism where you're writing about something that most people not might not know anything about and trying to explain something kind of interesting to them um and in simple terms that they can understand if you're the if you're a member deeply embedded in a community you're never going to feel like right your community has, you know, been adequately characterized by, you know, a, a, a thousand or 2000 word article, because that's impossible. Um, but like, I think, you know, I think 
the main idea really was that, you know, here's a place that was just that's open to all sorts of ideas. But when you open yourself up to all sorts of ideas, um, some ugly ideas creep in around the edges. Um, and it's really interesting that some of the people who some of the most powerful fans of this blog um, have some objectionable ideas, right? Like that, 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 that there is a certain kind of influence that the community has uh, on some powerful people whose actions make a difference in people's lives. And they look to this community for guidance, but this community isn't telling them that reactionary ideas are off the table. Right. So I mean, I what think is that's all it was saying? And what are some of the more objectionable kinds of ideas? Well, I mean, like the neo-reactionary stuff, the dark enlightenment stuff. Like, like so what does that phrase mean? Dark enlightenment is a phrase in the piece. Uh, you know, there's a kind of a school of thought that's associated with people like Curtis Yarvin or Nick Land, a British philosopher. I'm not that deep into it. Um, but like it's 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 basically um neo-authoritarian it's about like why we'd be better off um with an authoritarian government like yarvin stuff is basically all about like it's it, there, and there's an easy route to this through a certain kind of libertarianism right like if you believe that you know one of the great things about a system of property is that people take care of their property um, it's in your interest to take care of your property and to get the most that you can out of it. Um, and so wouldn't it be better if the United States of America was just somebody's property and like, like a big corporation and they had, and they, they would have like a real, all our interests would align, right? Mm. Because they'd want everything they'd, they'd want to do the best they can, right? Like right. they'd want to get as rich as they can. And that's like, that's how we're going to have like real progress, you know, technologically, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's, it, these are really, really old arguments. They're, they're the same arguments that monarchists would make against, um, mm. like liberal reformers who wanted parliaments. It's the same arguments that fascists would make in the twenties and thirties against the datedness of democracy and the way it, that it's too, muddled, can't be decisive, it's too slow, and you need, you know, somebody at the top who can make decisions uh, and who can actually transform society according to some ideal by, like, force of will and mm -hmm. force of arms. Um, otherwise, we'll just get stuck in a bog of useless, endless democratic deliberation that just goes nowhere. That's kind of, I feel like, the, the, like the spirit behind it. Yeah. yeah. So like nobody ever washed a rented nation kind of logic as, as Larry Summers might put it. The, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean uh, anyway, the, the people um, in democracies treat their country like a rental car. Right. Exactly. My, yes, my point. Exactly. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's interesting. The, uh, well, it's a couple of interesting things. Um, the, the, uh, I mean, first of all, I do I do think reading the New York Times piece, uh, I mean, I found the valuable part to me was just my becoming more aware 
that these different people I had known of, a couple of whom I had had on, on blogging heads, were actually, in some sense, part of a movement, a community, you know, Robert Hansen, Yudkowsky. Um, uh, that's interesting. And I want to look more into it. But I do think definitely the piece, I, I, I think the author wanted to leave you with the idea that there's something creepy about the movement. And it sounds to me like you're saying that's not necessarily off base. I mean, it's sounding to me like if it, by your lights, it would be that if there was something unfair about the piece, it was at times making it sound as if Scott Siskin himself is, is unsavory, as opposed to him having a blog that has become embedded in a community, some of whose members are unsavory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think it's like more like a, a, like the thing is like, I, people were definitely reading it back to Scott. I think he, he was thinking it was about him as well, but like you know, like if you read Slate Star Codex, I mean, like you can tell that this is like an incredibly sweet, decent person, right? Like, mm -hmm. he, like, like it's a, he's a psychiatrist who really cares about his patients. He cares a lot more than the average psychiatrist because he goes through a lot of work trying to figure out what does and doesn't work. He like really cares about, you know, getting to the truth about like which psychiatric disorders like are, uh, are, you know, could be you know, like which drugs actually work. You know, like, like just, he just wants to help. He really does. Um, he, he, he is incredibly rational. He's really smart. He's really good. I don't think he has a, a mean bone in his body. Um, but like, I also think it's true that people like that, especially if they really buy into a kind of free speech absolutist kind of like, like free speech absolutist, not just in the legal sense, which I think I am, but like in some kind of cultural sense where we're harming ourselves if we don't hear every side of a debate. Like if we just shut some people down so that they don't get to talk, that mm -hmm. we always ought to teach the debate and have an open discussion. Um, now, if you ever talk to like a member of a traditionally oppressed minority, they're, they'll be very quick to tell you how problematic that can be. Um, and, and, and they're not wrong. Right. And this is one of the senses in which <laughs> I, I, I may look a little woke to some people, but like, I, I think it's a, I just think that that view is wrong, that you, you have to decide what your values are first, right? Like I value truth immensely. Um, I also value freedom and equality and I think that we have a lot of norms of public speech and behavior that reinforce kind of oppressive structures of domination and, 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 and exploitation. And that in order to, you know, in order to give people the kind of like dignity and respect as democratic equals that they deserve, we have to enforce certain norms about what's okay to say in public. Um, 
Like, and that's actually a condition for all of us to have meaningful freedom. Um, and that is actually, but, and I think that this doesn't harm in any sense, the search for truth. Um, because more egalitarian norms that make it easier for um, people who haven't had the same chances as, you know, Anglo white guys like us, uh, or I don't know if you're Anglo, maybe you're German, I don't know. But like, <laughs> white the, guys. The, the Irish part of me is the non-Anglo part. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so like, I just don't that like, like, I, I, I think, like a lot of woke norms or what people think of as political correctness, I see as trying to elevate people who've been pushed down. And for me, as like somebody who cares a lot about the discovery of new knowledge, technological innovation and economic growth, I think one of the biggest tragedies in the history of the world is hierarchical social structures that have prevented everyone from contributing, from developing their capacities and contributing all of their talents to the enterprise of the discovery of knowledge and the invention of new technology, we would be vastly richer. You know, if you get the compounding logic of economic growth in your head, if, if we'd had, you know, women's equality, racial equality a hundred years earlier, we'd be vastly richer than we are today. And I see the norms that some people see as oppressive as being conducive to the kind of equality that brings the best out of everybody and lifts everybody up. Um, and even like even in my market fundamentalist way, even if like you're just thinking about it in terms of like, I want people to do science so that they can figure out how the world works so that they can make technologies that are going to make us rich, right? Like that means... I want like black girls to get an amazing education. That's what that means, right? Like, and, and, and if they are going to feel demeaned and demoralized, if people can talk about them in certain ways, um, and that's going to keep that from happening, I think that's an outrage. Um, and like, I don't, so I don't actually see my, my, so like, I don't think that what they think is oppressive and a threat to freedom is, um, mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of the disconnect, but they're very sure it is. And they think because the New York Times represents a certain viewpoint that they think um, tends to suppress the kind of diversity of thinking that they think is necessary for free flowing debate and discovery, like they have an antagonistic attitude towards those kind of institutions. Yeah, it's funny. Well, Matt uh, Iglesias in his uh, newsletter piece on this talked about the tension between the kind of attitude the rationalists want to cultivate and the kind of read the room sensibility, right? These guys are like against reading the room. And I got to say, like Robin Hanson, I kind of inferred that he was not capable of reading the room, but maybe. I mean, you know, he has said some things that is like, no, no, no you don't, Robin, stop. <laughs> Let me save yeah. you the, the amount of trouble you're going to get into. I don't know if he's, and I think some of them may actually be like that. I mean, there is a certain amount of this kind of in Silicon Valley in particular, not that that's where he is, but a, a kind of non-room reading. But there's, I think Matt was also talking about a kind of a, 
an intentional opposition to reading the room. I mean, uh, for example, like, uh, you know, Charles Murray, if I happen to agree with Charles Murray on something unrelated to race, I would probably just to stay on the safe side, find somebody else I agreed with on that subject to cite instead of Charles Murray, right? That's kind of like, like in a way, uh, some would say a, a, a hypersensitive reading the room uh, sensibility, but it, it's what a lot of people would do. And I, and I think, you know, Matt was saying these people are very against that. And I think for some of them, not reading the room becomes an end in itself, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like, 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 and, and that, and that's how you get this kind of like a kind of slippery slope from just completely anodyne, good hearted, um, absolutist liberal toleration for an unfettered marketplace of ideas, uh, to, um, a kind of like bad faith right wing shit stirring where they like, Will, will be like, you know, like they'll say something overtly sexist or overtly racist, or at least just like it's clear what they're getting at, but they, they just have enough plausible deniability. And if you're like, dude, that's a little racist. They're just like, oh, I can't even like, I can't even have a conversation about like difficult mm -hmm. issues. Like, like, yeah, right. Like in, and, and, and they're doing that not because they're actually being shut down. Right. Like they're consciously provoking a reaction so that they can blame the other side for being censorious and repressive because they actually do have bad illiberal ideas and people who can delegitimize those ideas get in their way. So if they can delegitimize them first as the people who are hostile to free speech and open discussion, then their path is clearer. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, and, I, and I think like a lot of just like really earnest people don't grasp this dynamic and see how they are exploited by some bad people um, to give them cover for genuinely shitty stuff. Yeah, and I think you'll want to emphasize that you're not saying that uh, Scott is one of the absolutely not actors, but I think but I think his platform has been um, exploited by people with some really dangerous ideas. And the thing is, like I, I like a lot of critics of the you know of the piece. You know, I don't think it's a great piece, but like, look, like think about it for a second though, like. This dude wanted to write a story. No ill will. He, he talks to Scott Alexander. He's like, hey, I'm going to write a story about you. And he's like, uh, you know, I want to be anonymous. Can't use my name. And he's like, uh, you know, the rules are that I have to use your name. Now, it seems like nobody actually knows what the rules are. Like, mm -hmm. that seems completely true. And I think it's hard to know because there are so many different kinds of circumstances. I think it's hard to have a, a general rule about when you should... Uh, accept a subject's request to remain anonymous um, because that's a, that can't be your default as a journalist that if somebody that you talk to who is the subject of the story says they don't, you don't want they don't want you to use their name mm -hmm. like like you can't do your job if you're not using people's names and and the thing is like also you know 
Scott's real name was super easy to find. So he hadn't concealed it that well. So it's not like it was like a, a real big secret. So he wanted to write the story. He said he, he told the guy, I think, just thinking that he's he's following the rules that, oh, I like I, I can't guarantee you that I can keep you anonymous. Scott just flips his fucking wig. And. Like kills his entire website, this giant archive of stuff and his followers go absolutely apeshit and some of them like literally freaking like you know like try to cancel Cade Metz right like he's getting a world of shit right like if you saw those quotes from um you know Balaji I'm gonna try to pronounce his last name um uh you know like who's a really powerful person in in in, in Silicon Valley and he's like basically saying like we can try to make life a complete nightmare for that people was like a this. creepy quote i, I right. am i am prepared to say that unless that was a complete misquote or taken out of context uh that guy has some apologizing to do. i don't remember his name either but it was a creepy quote about how we you know basically like we can sick our dogs on reporters we don't like and make their lives miserable he's a really really important person in silicon valley I, is it something like that it's in uh, it's in the piece it's in the new york times piece it's it's uh it's it's uh not just bad i'm bad bad at pronouncing the name um but but that's not fake um cade metz got a world of shit for even wanting to write a story and just saying that he didn't couldn't guarantee that he wasn't going to use his name funny thing scott's kind of initial post in his you know in his new incarnation of his blog what's it called again astral codex 10 and people should go there and read his reply to the new york times piece um but before that read his initial post which gets into the original story. And this is why Scott's so great. He effectively acknowledges that that Cade Metz didn't do anything wrong, mm-hmm. that he overreacted because he was afraid of what would happen to him. Um, and he just like did that, like he took this huge, you know, he, he nuked his site, right? Nobody was asking him to do that. Like he, like nobody was actually threatening him. Um, it's just like a journalist. Now, he wrote this a... before this New York, the, before yeah, he New wrote York it before... Times piece finally came out. A, a, he, there's a great discussion of how complicated the, the name issue is. And he, you can see that he's understands, like he's, he came to be able to see it from the other guy's perspective, right? Like, the, mm-hmm. like he's overcoming some biases and he, it, like, it, it's a great post. And, but, but the, the upshot of it is that he owns some responsibility for what happened, right? Like he flipped out about somebody trying to do their job who wasn't doing anything wrong and got that person in kind of in a lot of trouble with a lot of people. Um, and then, so, but he, like his reaction to the piece that got actually got written that was just released was then again, he, he characterizes it as a hit piece because he somehow thinks the Times has it out for him for making them look bad, which again is the same kind of like, they don't care. Right. Like if you've ever dealt with this like gigantic bureaucratic institution, it like, like 
it, it literally couldn't think more of itself. It like it's kind of unhumiliatable, and uh, <laughs> and, and like they're certainly yeah. not going to be mad it, at a no, pseudonymous psychiatrist. It, it's in funny. I mean, I don't think he's imagining that this was kind of a negative piece. I think it was. It's not flattering, and I think. Like, but what the, happened to Cade Metz? That's the thing. Well, exactly. Right? Like, like, like well, that is what shows you what the community is actually like, right? And so people well, in the community who are complaining about, um, like, uh, something that didn't seem that positive, after Scott Alexander massively overreacts, like, whether or not he intended to, his fans dogpiled this reporter yeah. for no reason, completely unjustly, Um. And you expect the guy who's writing a story about you to not think that that doesn't reflect on the nature of the community? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, right? But I, they're acting like it's unfair for him to like think that it had anything to do with anything. Right. So I, I, I kind of agree. I mean, I mean, Scott has the theory. Somebody put this in his head. He says somebody who's like in the know and understands these things said, well, the Times is going to retaliate now because you embarrass him. It reminds me of how when I was at the New Republic, Mike Kinsley was the editor, and we would laugh at how we would get these letters uh, positing these theories about why we did things. And it's like, oh, I see you ran these three pieces. It all falls into place. And, and we're like, wait, one piece was foisted on us by the owner. The other piece came in in the transom, and we had a hole to fill in the mat. You know, there was like no connection. But people would always do this. And I think, I think on the one hand, he's wrong to think the New York Times was reacting to the original controversy and ordered up this hit piece. On the other hand, it wouldn't surprise me if the author of the piece had his attitude toward this group soured by the encounter and may have even without being conscious of, I mean, it may be what you said that he just logically concludes that, hey, these people aren't great. It could also be that that at a kind of unconscious level, this is retaliation because they made his life miserable. And even if he's doing his best to be objective, that still came through. That's possible too. The thing I don't think happened. I think is he's partly he's trying up. to explain why this is the kind of group that would, would make his life a mess. Yeah. Because Scott Alexander overreacted. Um, That, that could be, it, it's uh you know, it's not, it, it, I would say it's definitely not a favorable uh, piece. Uh, sounds like Scott may have legit gripes about indiv- individual um, sentences, but I, but I think that it was not ordered up by the New York Times. That would be very, very unusual. Um, well, as like, like um, there was a great story about all of this in the New Yorker this summer um, by Gideon Lewis Krauss. Um, and he he says you know the exact right thing that 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 like he's like I used to work for the New York Times magazine and uh, and just like the idea that somebody would you know be like here's this guy who's popular in Silicon Valley like get him is just very very weird um, because you know how stories get written. It's that a reporter gets kind of interested in something and, and like wants to poke around and like ask their editor, Hey, like, I, th- I think there's something here. Yeah. You know, should I check it out? Like write something up. And the editor's like, yeah, it sounds good. Um, and then they go poking around 
And sometimes, like in this case, weird shit happens while you're poking around that changes the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, right, like they, 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 because again, in journalism, the subject doesn't stay still. The subject has interests in being presented a certain way. In this case, it was Scott had an interest in not having his identity revealed. Um, And he was, you know, reacted to that danger. But like, and, but once he reacted this way, he created a, a newer, more interesting story. <laughs> um, right, yeah. And so like, I, I, I totally get why he'd want to remain anonymous. Sure. Um, but the thing is like, I don't think it's this journalist's responsibility ultimately, right? Like, like if you are doing something that you think could get you in huge professional trouble, and you've also done a terrible job of concealing your identity. Um, it's not somebody else's fault if somebody comes out and says who you are. And the Times did hold off on the piece until he... Yeah. Uh, uh, and it and, didn't publish anything. And it may be that the uh, journalist was in a worse mood than he would have been the first time around. The um, I want to read Matt Iglesias in his assessment of this. I think you will not buy this. You've read it, but... Matt says that implicit in the New York Times piece is a kind of syllogism. Scott Alexander's blog is popular with some influential Silicon Valley people. That's point number one. Scott Alexander has done posts that espouse views on race or gender that progressives disapprove of. Therefore, in the third uh, part of the syllogism, therefore, Silicon Valley is a hotbed of racism and sexism. I don't think you'd put it that way. I think you'd, you'd say the Times accurately picked up on the idea that there were some people in this community uh, who uh, manifest racism and sexism. Uh, and then Scott Alexander was kind of tarred by association with him. Yeah. And the thing is like, I mean, like, it's not like, you know, Scott is definitely not woke. He, he, he has, he has, you know, a very common kind of like anti-woke, hostility that it's very common just with a lot of liberals who think it's best to just argue things out loud. Um, and, but like, I don't think, yeah, I don't think Matt is right about what's going on in the story. I don't think it was that kind of syllogism. Um, like you just have to get inside the mind of the reporter, right? Like what, like you might think, okay, this weird thing happened to me. I just wanted to write a simple story, just inoffensive. I was initially interested in like why this guy was right about coronavirus early on, right? Like, like that just seemed interesting. It seemed like an interesting community. It was interesting that he's popular with all these influential people. Um, and, and, and then he tries to start writing this story and he creates this giant controversy that like gets this whole, blog nuked and this entire community incensed at him and he's like going what what happened there well the first question you'd ask is like why was this guy so fucking scared that people would start scouring his website right like like what we like so he's saying that i mean you know, completely reasonably that he he would rather his patients, you know, like, you know, 
it's good for psychiatrists to have a certain kind of distance from their patients. It's good if they're sort of enigmatic, um, that they don't really know anything about your personal life. Um, it can hurt your ability to be effective with your patients if they know too much about your ideas, whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's that that's credible. But clearly, a lot of the issue was, I think that he was terrified that he'd get super canceled because there's a lot of very unwoke stuff in the archives and discussion boards and stuff like that. Much of which he had not written. Much of which, yeah, I mean, like almost none of which he'd written, but like, okay. but he's got some unwoke opinions that, that could, you know, yeah. and if you're, and if you're really worried about getting canceled, just like if you're generally panicked about that prospect, um, and then, and, and you have pre-existing views about the kind of ideological agenda of the New York Times and how it's trying to enforce a certain kind of ideological conformity, um, you, you're going to, you might feel really threatened just by having, by the very fact that one of them is poking around. Mm -hmm. And, and then the fact that they, they're, they are telling you that they can't promise to not use your real name. Yeah. You're like, fuck man, I'm going to get canceled. Right. Like, I, and, yeah. and so that's why the whole thing happens. And so the, 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 so then the, the reporter, Cade Metz, is going to be like, yeah, like, so what was it that he was so f afraid that I'd see? And I think this is like an article about that in a way. Um, and uh, it, 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 but then people who got so mad about it thought that he was trying to that 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 Metz was attempting to characterize the entire community, which I don't think he was trying to do at all. I just don't see that in the piece, like when he. When he, the section on like what rationalists believe, um, it's shallow, but it's completely fair and there's nothing objectionable in it, right? It's like, it's like they're really into Bayesianism. Um, they're weirdly worried about AI destroying the world. Now that's a real, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just odd. It's, it's like. It gets back to like the way on the one hand, I see myself as in the same game they are, they are in. And yet I'm, I'm playing in a totally different field is like, yes, irrationality is a huge problem. Cognitive bias is a huge problem. And the main problem I can think of is that it keeps leading to war and strife. It just seems to me like worrying about, uh, computers uh, someday making an infinite number of paper clips by taking an algorithm too literally is just not, right. not high on the list of threats actually faced by the planet. But, you know, I mean, the, the, the obsessions just seem kind of odd to me. Now, I don't know these people and maybe- I'm more worried about Curtis Yarvin, right? Like, so that, that's the only kind of like thing that like, there's a, this one paragraph of that section, many rationalists embraced effective altruism an effort to remake charity by calculating how many people would benefit from a given donation. It's a terrible characterization of effective altruism, but mm -hmm. like, who cares? Right? Like, it's just like, um, it, like people who don't know anything about it, it's like good enough. Okay. So many embrace that many embraced effective altruism, which nobody thinks is bad. Right. Um, I like, was wondering, is there a could, very close connection to the effective altruism community to the rationalists? I mean, I guess there's some intersection, but oh, there's a, yeah, there's definitely there's okay. a there's a there's a strong overlap. Okay. Um, like Iglesias gets into it in his post, like like that the, on the influence on 
this kind of community on improving philanthropy. I think mm -hmm. they've had a, a really positive effect on, mm -hmm. on you know, like you're wasting your money if it's not going to actually do mm -hmm. any good. So you should try to make sure it does some good. Effective altruists end up being weird because they end up with like a really vulgar consequentialism where they start to worry about like, you know, like what would maximize the number of hedons in the cosmos or something like that. Like we're supposed to care. Um, like, but like, but, like so, there's a real overlap. There's a actually, I, I think one of the best pieces that's ever been written about it, uh, effective altruism, was written by Scott Alexander in Late, Late Star Codex. He mm -hmm. has a brilliant essay where he goes to this big effective altruism conference in San Francisco, and he and he's like so insightful and and kind of wise. Like, and he 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 has like a he's loving and affectionate towards these people, but he also sees a lot of them have gone like weirdly off the deep end in like the, the in like in how intensely they're thinking about chickens. Um, and so, so like this one paragraph, it says many embrace effective altruism. Some embrace the online writings of neo-reactionaries like Curtis, Curtis Yarvin, who held racist beliefs and decried American democracy. That's they were mostly white men, but not entirely. That entire paragraph, which it has the only thing that you would find, you know, like that is not positive or is has a clear negative valence. It's just true, right? Like, yeah. Well, there there is the one Charles Murray line about Scott himself, and if that's yeah, it, I think it, that it, one was shitty. I think that, that was sounds that like was, it. Yeah, maybe. I think that was bad. I'm like it, it. To me, like if I was to guess, it's sort of like that does seem opportunistic it, that, that did seem like yeah this will make him kind of look bad um, and, then, and then there are lesser i mean like just one he, you again people should read it scott lists several of these but the there's a quote he describes some feminists as something close to voldemort the embodiment of evil in the harry harry potter books and that sounds like it's technically true but scott's point is that he was just talking about several people who happened to be feminists. There were probably also other things that, you know, he was not talking about a whole group. He was talking about uh, a few people who did specific things that he thought were bad. But anyway. Um, but well, this is what I'm saying. Okay. Like if you think of it from the perspective of what it was, what, what was Scott Alexander worried about, worried that he might get canceled for? Mm -hmm. It's things like that. Uh, yeah, I could be. I, I don't know. I mean, and as you said, the whole you can people do get tarred by association with things commenters say on their sites and so on. I can imagine I can imagine kind of freaking out if you've been uh, had the benefit of anonymity. You've got a, a ton of stuff and all of a sudden you've got to think about being personally um, identified with it. But it, it does sound like. uh they uh there was a certain overreaction that that may have uh not worked ultimately to to their favor in terms of how this piece came out yeah and again like i really you know enjoined people to read uh the the kind of first big post in uh astral codex 10 i think it's just called still here um and it, it and it's a really truly nuanced discussion of what what had happened um and he 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 apologizes for things mm -hmm. um he's like i owe the times apologies for a few things i did while fighting them like you like and he he's he's right about the things that he was kind of shitty about um 
like in Tito, he 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 he's just like he's like a you know he's it's hard it's hard to like take responsibility it's hard to it's hard to admit that you kind of panicked um and created a bigger problem that like there wasn't actually a big problem but your fear of what would happen to you um created one i'm like like i think that's hard to admit and he basically does admit it um so which is why i found it a little unfortunate is that he seemed to kind of like revert back to they have it out for me um Mm -hmm. when uh when metz's story actually went up but like i think you just have to see that story in light of the whole thing now you're you're, you've come up with an interesting theory which is that yes he's right that that the tenor of this piece was shaped by the blowback that the reporter got the first time around but he's wrong to think that this was orchestrated retaliation that's an interesting theory you know i think i think i really think some of the problems with the piece you know as a as a writer, uh, as somebody who's, you know, had to do formal journalism, um, but like mostly doesn't, uh, like this appeared, I think in the business section, um, like Metz is a tech reporter. Uh, and so it's written in a pretty straightforward repertorial style, mm-hmm. um, where Metz is submerged in the piece. Um, it would work better as a personal essay where where he's just, you know, actually lays out like here. Here's what I was doing. You know, like, here's what I was interested in. I, you know, I like went to write this story. Mm-hmm. This giant controversy blew up. Like, here's all the people who like, I, you know, you should have fucking seen my my email, man. Like, like people were threatening me like Balaji Srinivasan was, you know, you know, like sounded like he was going to like kill my children. Like, um, like this sucked. And like, what did I do? Right. Like, and, and, and if he, and if he just written it out that way and it'd been like, man, I like, then I got really curious. Like, why was there this reaction to somebody just wanting to write a story with the guy's name in it? Um, and I think if he just kind of laid it out that way, there was an odd texture to the piece. Uh, and it's just, I, and I think that's just a, a, a function of genre. It's like a, yeah. it's like it's a, it's a tech reporter writing in a business page, and so it, you know it it, it would have worked better in New York Times Magazine where he could have just like essayed. Yeah. So I think we've gotten to the bottom of this. Will I couldn't have done it without <laughs> you? I, I, I'm adopting uh, I'm adopting uh, your theory that yes, yes, this was a reaction of sorts, but not the kind exactly that is being. Uh, alleged um because Cade Metz like Scott Alexander Siskind is a human being with feelings um, well, that was we should say that was the the the, the what uh, your the tweet which you now say was half trolling was just noting after all the rationalists got outraged about the New York Times piece how amusing it was to see rationalists uh, in the throes of emotion. Yeah, you know, it, 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 you know, that, I think that is kind of shitty of me. Like, it, 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 but it has to do with with my my like intimacy with the with the relation with the with the, with the community. I find like it's one of the things that I find frustrating. Right? Is this there 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 could be a kind of like sense of sort of supercilious 
authority like and i you know i went through this like i was like an ayn rand objectivist i i know what it's like to think you figured things out and that everybody else is benighted mm-hmm. and just you know utterly confused about stuff that ought to be perfectly clear um and and but there's a lot of times just like a like a real failure uh to understand people in a compassionate way um and to and to understand this like the texture of people's lives and thinking it's overly abstract it you know like the way they think about thinking disembeds people too much from real life from the communities that they're in from the interests that they have as you know brothers and sons and fathers and you know um mostly not sisters and wives it's not shitty to point that out um and yeah like um and so like and but but one of the reasons why i think it's a a little shitty is i as you you kind of like pointed towards like a lot of these communities like like just like as i was talking about self-selection in 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 academia and in police departments these communities you know attract a certain kind of person um and there's a lot of you know neurodiversity you know in 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 these groups there are definitely people um on the spectrum um like a lot of people who are on the spectrum feel really aggrieved by um and understandably so by like like how am i supposed to constantly keep up with these kind of read the room norms when it's hard to read the room mm-hmm. Right. Like and 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 it's easy to see how people who are going to cancel you if you just are bad at reading rooms can feel really, really threatening. Right. And I think that's definitely an element that's going on here and that, that that's worth being sensitive to. Um, and and but like that's also one of the reasons why you should expect homogenous groups like this um, to never arrive at a very great answer about like how to be rational in particular because the group is going to attract a certain kind of person and that kind of person is going to tend to think about things a certain way they're all going to miss the same kinds of things at the same time um and and the lack of diversity is a is is actually a is a real significant indicator of the fact that it's not attractive to everyone and that the way they talk about things and the conclusions they they come to um, aren't the things that different kinds of people would conclude given the same, you know, set of information, even if they're just as smart as you, even if they're just as well read. And that that's exactly what ought to give you pause. That's what, like, if you're in a group that is predominantly a certain kind of person, you're biased, period. That's it. The only way to offset the bias is by constantly forcing yourself to confront people who do have different views. And that's not, but that's not their attitude. That's kind of what they say, but that's not really the attitude towards woke stuff. Um, well, we should invite them into conversation with people like you and me. Clearly, I like to talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and I, I can arrange that. I can arrange that. I, I, but seriously, I am interested in learning more about their approach to rationalism because I do think in some sense it's what the planet needs. But 
I, my my own obsessions uh, are uh, in applying uh, in applying it are a little, I guess, a little different. And I'd like to, I, I honestly would like to get have have more discussion uh, with people who 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 think that uh, who have different ideas about where rationalism is most urgently needed uh, than I do. So so thanks. Well, we should say if, several things involving the word Substack. First of all. Scott Siskin's blog is Astral Codex 10. That's where he replies, replies to the New York Times piece, which is called Silicon Valley's Safe Space, if you want to Google it. Matt Iglesias writes about this controversy on his slow, boring Substack newsletter. By the way, Elizabeth Spears uh, wrote an interesting piece, probably closer to your perspective, Wills, about this in her Substack newsletter, My New Band. She was a co-founder of Gawker, among many other things. She, she knows the Silicon Valley territory pretty well. Her whole, her whole publication got canceled by Peter Thiel. Uh, who, who shows up in the New York Times piece and is one of the otter characters who is in this, in this community. Um, uh, we could do a whole conversation about him. Sure could. The, the, uh, the, um, uh, uh, my Substack newsletter is called Non-Zero, but most important of all, Will, your Substack newsletter is called Model Citizen. And uh, as we've established, you are in a time of need. I mean, if, <laughs> if only out of just sheer pity, right? Yeah. People um, should subscribe to your newsletter. You'd be happy to accept money on those grounds. Am I right? Um, I'm a little bit proud, but not that Not that proud. proud. Yeah. It, it, but like, if this is interesting, like... I was literally writing about this and I stopped to talk to you, Bob. So uh, at some point, maybe late tonight, uh, there'll be a long uh, piece up so on people uh, should Model check it Citizen out. This will about go this up, very issue. This will go up on Tuesday. So the piece will be out uh, probably by the time. So they should go to Model Citizen. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it'll and, be there. And be enlightened. Okay. So thank you. Thank you very much, Will. Thanks, Bob. We'll see you next time. It's fun as always.